Hey, welcome back to another edition of Occupy Interview. And our guest today, introduce yourself, please, Robin. My name is Robin Kerner. Um, I am a uh, British citizen, but I've been an immigrant to the United States for nine years. I'll become American next year, um, unless, of course, they arrest me and throw me out of the country first. Uh, I am the founder and publisher of a volunteer organization called Watching America that translates foreign opinion and commentary about the United States from all over the world. Um, I'm also a political and economics blogger on the Huffington Post, Daily Paul, Moderate Voice, some other websites. And, um, and through that platform, I'm best known for coining the phrase Blue Republican, which spawned something of a movement, uh, thanks to some great individuals like Israel Anderson and Zach Carter, who's, who we might talk about later. Um, and, uh, yeah, that's kind of what I'm all about. And uh, I know that in this in this interview, we'll talk a bit about what Blue Republican is about, and uh, I look forward to doing that. Uh, what else do you want to know? <laughs> well, that's a pretty fair start. I told okay. Zach the other day, and again, Zach was our guest uh, last year, last mm-hmm. season. I uh, told Zach, well, this is going to be awesome. We've got a Brit and a transplanted Patty trying to set up policy here. So <laughs> this could be one of the seals broken on the apocalypse just about to happen. Well, I've got to say, you, you know, in a manner of speaking, that is how the entire nation was founded, right? <laughs> Very good. Yeah. Uh, well, let's, uh, let's start with um, – I may kick a link up to it, but I also was a Democrat who was voting trying to support – Ron Paul. I uh, never mm. got to do that unless, uh, finally, I did get to put him in as a write-in. Um, okay. I don't feel like that was an overwhelming victory, but, hey, I, <laughs> I finally got to vote for who I wanted to for a change instead of just voting for the lesser two evils, and that felt pretty good. It does uh, well, feel good. What did was you do you, it in a state where they actually counted your write-in vote? I doubt it. I'm from Indiana yeah. right now. I'm, I'm not sure. I... I don't know. And I didn't even go back and look. It just kind of seemed okay. like <laughs> I I don't know. Um what uh what was your Ron Paul experience? And I had two of these by the way. Uh, uh were you already in country for the first time he ran? I can't remember what you'd said about that. You know, Terry, um despite the fact that I'm kind of somewhat identified now with the liberty movement, I you know, I was I had no interest in politics whatsoever. <laughs> It was four years ago it all started for me. So, 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 um, was I in, I was in the country eight years ago, but I didn't have a clue about anything. Um, so, so I was not actively involved. In okay. Well, you didn't miss much. We got creamed that time too. But go ahead for Ron Paul. Take two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, well, Ron Paul, of course, has taken two, three, four, five, six, or seven. Uh-huh. He? He's been young. Well, um, yeah, yeah, and uh, no, but th- yeah, we all have our we all have our stories, don't we? Well, one thing I like about traveling is kind of like a liberty speaker. Is I get to meet people and hear them. Everyone has a road to Damascus experience. When it comes to <laughs> well, we are trying to see the light on this show. That's what it's all about. Right, um, can you can you kick us in? And there'll be a link on this for basically the start of the. The Blue Republican. <laughs> and I choke. Okay. I can't even say that. I, I keep wanting to say Blue Democrat every time I've got to I, I talk about I can't get myself out of that. Here's the magic word paradigm. And I know better. Yeah. 
Uh, go ahead, say Well, I'm all about paradigm busting. That's I'm like the raison d'etre of Blue Republican, right? <laughs> uh, you know, hence, hence the, the um, implicitly contradictory name, you know, Blue Liberal Republican kind of thing. Um, and the logo is the dem is like uh, you know the Democrat donkey head on the um, Republican elephant uh, backside. There's one of those medieval. Uh, isn't that one of a? I can't think of the word for that when it's a combination of teeth like a grip. Yeah, and I know what you mean. Yeah, <laughs> and that's a scary thought right there. Yeah, well, you know, we're all talking about the Republicans and how they're really just one party. You know, which right. is more or less true. Um, you know, they're the power party. You know, aren't they? Capital P, and um, you know, so you know, they may as well. It was no great leap of imagination to use that as a logo, but uh, that's what we're that's what we're you know addressing. That's our context is this is this more or less single party state that we that we live in. But um, yeah, the, the start of the the start of Blue Republican, I was given um, an opportunity to write on the Huffington Post. I am a bit of a skeptic about people who write on the internet because there are millions of them who seem to believe that the world needs to hear what they have to say. And, um, and I never really believed that. Uh, I don't quite have that degree of narcissism, I don't think. I hope not. Um, but I, you know, I, I'd, um, I had been invited and I'd occasionally written on websites for years, but I just didn't think it made much of a difference, so I wasn't very motivated. But I was given this opportunity to work in the Huffington Post, which obviously is a, a, a large platform. It's a, it's a serious brand, whatever you think about the poli- you know, their politics as an organization. Um, so I thought, well, you know, I was a liberal by default politically. I was basically uninterested in politics. Um, being a middle-class educated person, I was liberal by default. Um, in the in the kind of capital L sense, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the we, idea that if you have, we probably you know, need to explain what that means, by the way. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, if you have government and you have law, um, then obviously, if you're a good person, what you want to do is legislate good stuff. And if you legislate good stuff, you're making good policy. And good stuff includes social justice, economic justice you know, more health, not less, you know, um, those kind of things, just obvious things, you know, that well-meaning people want. I think the liberal by default position is, uh, is reasonable, caring. It's the position of good intention without realizing that you actually can't use effectively government force to legislate good intention and to enforce good intentions. But that method doesn't work. Now, back in the 60s, 70s, and maybe even 80s, it was a perfectly reasonable position to think that it would work, but now the data are in, and the data tell us that um, uh, it ain't that simple, and that your political means um, have de- yeah, are a greater determinant of outcomes than the intentions that from which you legislate, right? Um, from which you make policy. It's, it, you, have, you have to be much more... You know, unintended consequences are the majority of what we cause when we legislate good intentions. Um, and so most of the problems we have now that we face, problems made by the left and the right, um, are really political iatrogenics. And iatrogenics is the causing of harm um, in implementing an intention to do good. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, so that's most of what we face. And, uh, but I think, you know, liberal by default is, is basically using government with good intention. 
um, without being sufficiently aware of of how problematic that that is, um, of how good intentions, as I say, don't generate good outcomes. So that was my position. Um, I think a lot of Huffington Post, that was my position before I became a classical liberal Ron Paul guy, I should say. Yeah, that's when it's uh, really going to get interesting. Oh, I <laughs> so, so I remember, you know, 30, for, well, I'm not going to tell you how old I am. Right? You know, for most of my life, for all of my life except for the last four years, I was a liberal by default, not very interested in politics, and, and I would probably resonate with much of what I would be, have read on the Huffington Post. Okay. Um, so I still remember what it's like to be capital L liberal. Um, I, I kind of come from there. Uh, that's, um, that's what we need to address is uh, probably people don't understand capital L liberal as in in Great Britain, the liberal party is actually a party just like there's a Democrat party here, correct? Actually, the closest to the liberal party in, I'm sorry, the closest to the American Democrat party in Britain would be the Labour Party. Okay. Um, but... But there's there's a lot of differences between Labour and Democrat on the one hand and Conservative and Republican on the other hand that we might get into because they're very interesting. Yes. Um, but it's not a simple. That's not a simple analogy to draw. Okay. But, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, more or less, more or less. So anyway, I had this opportunity, Terry, to write on Huffington Post. It's a big platform, and I felt maybe I could put what I now believe politically, um, what I now understand politically, in the language of of the left by default, of liberals by default, of maybe you might call them the soft left. You know, Robin today can speak to Robin of five, five, six, seven years ago. Okay. And I thought, well, I'll just try that. I'll do a few articles along those lines using the language of the left to explain why state-centered, state-driven progressivism has failed even to deliver on the principles of the left. Right. Okay. And I thought I'll, I'd give that a shot and see if anything happens. And if not, I won't write anymore. Well, I wrote one article where um, I, I wrote a few articles, but it, I haven't written many before. I wrote this one that became big. That was called "If You Love Peace, Become a Blue Republican Just for a Year." <laughs> and the argument of this article was: Bear in mind, I'm writing on the Huffington Post, so I'm writing for. Obama voting independents and um, uh, and Democrats, right? Okay. And by the way, I should say, when Obama was elected the first time, although I was not politically engaged, I was very happy about it. I thought it. I thought the punishment of the you know the Bushite Republican Party was exactly what was needed. Um, so if I could have voted, which I couldn't because I'm, you know, not American citizen, I would I probably would have voted for Obama, right? So I wrote in this article, um, if you voted for Obama out of true liberal principles, you were voting for him because you don't like crony corporatism, you do like civil rights, and you do like peace. But the problem is now after four years, You've got more crony corporatism. You don't have any more peace. And your civil rights have been taken down at the same rate that Bush was taking them down. This is a disaster. So do not throw your liberal principles. Stick to them by becoming a Republican just so you can affect the Republican ticket. You can't affect the Democrat ticket anyway at this point. Um, to put the one presidential candidate that actually has a track record on these principles... Um, 
So yeah, you can put him on the Republican ticket, and that was Ron Paul. I hope we get Ron Paul into the White House. And in that same article, I address a couple of the big issues that I know that um, Democrats, people on the left, have with Ron Paul's politics. Um, and, you know, like uh, the transition off the welfare state, etc., etc. And I said, I know if you're reading this on the Huffington Post and you've rated Obama, you probably hate the Republican Party. That's completely fine. That's legitimate. Um, you know, especially with the recent hijacking of the Republican Party by the religious right. Um, completely understandable. You might not want to therefore be of the Republican Party, but you're going to have to be in it to actually be able to support a candidate who's got a track record on supporting your principles as true liberals. Um, it just so happens that this candidate is Republican and is an old white, quote, conservative guy, um, Ron Paul. So um, I wrote that article. I'm, um, I have to give credit to a gentleman called Israel Anderson, who's been involved in the Ron Paul movement for some time, longer than me. Uh, he was the first guy, I think, to really notice that this article was a big deal, that the notion of blue Republican was a big deal and that we had um, a movement on our hands, potentially. And, um, and at the beginning, you know, he, he, helped, uh, he helped promote that. So I thank him for that. Um, and then I was contacted by Zach Carter, um, who was in Seattle, which is where I live, and he'd read the article and it made a big impact on him and a member of his family. And he said, oh, Robin, I think this, this approach is really the way to go. Yeah, it's a post-partisan approach. It's, it's non-left versus right. I'm, yeah, it's an approach that says the problem didn't come from the left or the right. The problem comes from everything the left and the right have, uh, of the establishment have typically agreed upon for many, many years. All the things they're not arguing about is how we've got in this mess. Uh, and a lot of people are resonating with that. Um, idea now and um, so, so so Zach came forward to me and said I really want to help you you know push this and it wasn't for Zach nobody probably would have heard of Blue Republican he did amazing work in that first year and uh, to get my you know to get me out there to get the, the Blue Republican meme out there and I did loads of interviews and uh, you know even some on the TV a couple on the TV um, but lots of stuff on the radio and, uh, and then, you know, I got this, uh, this something of a, a following, you know, if I can say that, uh, for some of my writing. And I've been trying to really explore this idea of a post-left versus a post-republicrat account of, of U.S. politics. And I'm delighted to say the country is hungry for it. Um, I know we will talk about Occupy and probably the Tea Parties a bit. They are different manifestations of this sense that... Uh, you know, the current account that we have that's given to us by the partisans, that's given to us by the mainstream media, just doesn't fit reality. Um, and people are, are interested in someone that can, um, you know, help with a gestalt switch, um, you know, in our political world. And uh, I hope that's what I do. And I'm not trying to sell my own views politically. You know, I, I don't need people to agree with me. Um, but what I do want to do is share the kind of joy of realizing that a bunch of stuff I believe, I believed before, was just wrong. I want to help people see the illusions that they carry. I want to help people break down those parts of their paradigm 
that might be false or limiting their view of what's really going on. And I find that when you do that, you don't have to sell um, any particular kind of political view. You don't have to sell liberty. You don't have to sell these things. Um, they kind of sell themselves. That's called um, self-evident in, in the yeah, liberal, yeah. Uh, liberal instruction manual we've got coming up here in a second. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, that's... So let me take though. You say something, Tay. <laughs> uh, yeah, I was. I was. I wanted to. I was really just sitting here thinking that was like almost the same flight course I ran in here. And do we have any kind of idea what kind of numbers there were of us of the Democratic Ron Paul supporters? I and mean, it's hard to tell because they mark yeah. things up in the election so badly. But are they? Right. Making, have you seen demographics? You know, uh, no, I, I, I mean, I haven't. I look at, I look at some of the polls, um, and I can give you, I mean, I have enough personal, or either dare I say anecdotal evidence, um, to be able, I think, to say something in, about that question that's meaningful. Right. Um, yeah, I didn't want to put you on the spot. I just was curious if you've seen anything yet. Um, no, I mean, look, the Blue Republican group per se is... Just the Facebook group, which is kind of the hardcore, is 14,000 people. But I know that hundreds of thousands um, have uh, kind of gone the way that, that, that you and I have gone. Right. Um, and I should say, you know, I'm traveling around the country now talking about these kind of things. And so I meet lots of people who, as I say, you know, share with me their experience and... There just are so many. I mean, there are so many. I'm, I think we're, you know, I think we're in the seven digits, frankly. Okay, on, on, a, on a policy thing, I, we're about uh, coming up on 20 minutes in. I'm I, I really fascinated by there's uh, the liberal, the concept of liberal, and again, there'll be a link for this. We've talked about this before. Uh, uh, Hedges, Chris Hedges, did an interview and I'll see if I can get a link up. And he talks about the middle of the road. Liberal is the middle of the road. People now tend to think it's far left. Um, he's the first person I heard that made that observation, and I believe he's dead on correct, or we wouldn't try to get him on this show. Uh, when you, What's interesting is it's like the Republican side of it has taken classical liberal economics, which is free market, Adam Smith, uh, really pre-Malthusian more than anything else. Uh, and then the, the Democrats seem to have the, the human rights side of it. Can you address how you – are you seeing that kind of a split? Most people that are, say, a I Tea Party person are, are surprised to see that they're a liberal, classical liberal. I think um, – yeah, I mean, this is, this is worth an extensive discussion. First of all, I would say, just to be absolutely clear, I don't think – I think that the Republican Party – as it has become in the last right. uh, few decades, is not uh, classically liberal when it comes to economics. They are corporatist. Um, you know, right. they, they seem to be... And, and actually, you know what, to be fair, the Democrats largely are too. Yes, and, and again, we're, our audience is used to the concept of... Uh, there's a historian named Carol Quigley, who everybody's heard me say yeah. so many times. They just say, Sh just yeah, we get it, Carol Quigley. But he right. basically says this is on purpose, and it was done on purpose. J.P. Morgan figured out if I buy off both the Republicans and the Democrats, I'm going to win every election. Right. right. 
Uh, and I, I think, you know, and this really is, I mean, this really speaks to the fundamental problem that transcends left, right, Democrat, Republican. Right. Um, th- there's, there's no doubt about that. And I think people are more open to that now than ever. Um, well, than ever since, you know, I can't really, I wasn't as engaged <laughs> as I am now. I've been as engaged as I am now, so I can't, I can't say that ever. But um, I, I get this a lot. And in answer to your earlier question, too, um, with the demographics, the under 30s have this. I mean, they have it. Right. Uh, I think that the the movement towards true liberty, to um, really addressing this kind of systemic corruption, um, is I think I think we've kind of already won it for the future because the under 30s are getting their education in places where the over 30s didn't you know they're using the internet um they're following their nose um you know they can they can smell that there's something wrong and they can easily find resources to help them understand why you know um they're reading bastiat they're reading hayek um it doesn't matter that the professors aren't mentioning these guys to them because they're finding them uh so you know we live in a very uh kind of a very exciting time i think you know i and i i try and kind of push this optimism I'm like, look, you know, we, I know we are the classical liberals, um, self, kind of self-identified classical liberals, constitutionalists, um, pro-Bill of Rights people, people who take that all very seriously. We might still be in a minority, a small one, but we are not in a small minority among the under-30s. Right. I, I, uh, so, now, I'm not in that demographic, but I did, because of the Occupy movement, that is our demographic. Uh, and I'd, I'll shoot a link from a person who is just did a, did a really good job in a blog post of, of identifying what that age group is thinking about. I think is this a millennial? Am I saying that correctly? I guess I guess it is. I mean, I'm I'm technically Generation X, okay. and I'm I'm kind of at the old end of uh, you know the people I'm talking about. And I'm on the same thing for a baby boomer. I mean, I'm right. supposed to be a baby boomer, but I'm really in about the same boat economically as uh, as as a millennial. I, I have basically lost everything at some point. The difference is that a millennial reminded me, well, at least you had something to lose, and that was absolutely a. Um, Right. That, that, yeah. took, that took me through the paradigm, and, and, and I'll need you to touch base on that one, if you would, too, where you talk about once you go through the paradigm, you can't see the other side. Um, I, you know, one thing that I did think, as you were just speaking there, Terry, was, um, you know, the important thing to know about what's going on here yeah. is it's not just political. It is cultural. Yes. The change is cultural like in the 60s there was a cultural change towards, you know, let's say progressive ideas. Right. Um, you know, culture leads politics, not the other way around. And you can go through history. And I mean, I mean history back to Anglo-Saxon times. You can find times um, where power has overreached, has encroached into uh, the everyday liberties of the people. And then the then... There's a cultural response to that, and then out of that, um, out of like a, uh, the sense of infringement upon the culture, um, there is a democratic, and I mean that small d, democratia, power of people, right? Enough people um, decide that uh, they now are losing something that they already believe they had, 
right? Not some political abstraction that's been taken away. Like, we had the Patriot Act, took away masses of, of our rights. You know, due process, all kinds of things. NDAA, due process, right? People don't come to the streets because it doesn't affect their everyday lives. But now, people feel that their lives are affected, whether that is in terms of civil rights because their calls are being listened to, or economically. And so, there's a cultural shift now, and that leads to political shift. What, and, uh, um, what, go, yes, ahead. That, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, the, the cultural shift, to me, when I in the first week of the Occupy Wall Street movement, uh, this OA, OASN, Occupy America Social Network, was born in the first week. Uh, also, in the very first week, I saw an extreme right-wing person, uh, Ron Paul, as an Occupy supporter, and I saw an extreme left-wing person, Ralph Nader, as an Occupy supporter. Is this one of those paradigm shifts? This is, exact, this is exactly what I'm talking about, but I will take issue with the, the, your characterization as extreme left-wing and extreme right-wing. And, and, it's, and it's the taking issue with those characterizations that is the, the paradigm shift. Please explain that. that. I, I, I um, think I know where you're going with it, and I, I concur. It's just you're going to do a better job trying to say it than I will. <laughs> well, okay, so let's, we, you know, obviously we started with Ron Paul. Let's, let's carry on talking about Ron Paul. Um, he has been painted, as you just indicated, as extreme right wing, right? Okay. As, quote, ultra-conservative. Right. Now, this is, as I say, the guy who has stood up for the Bill of Rights more than any other presidential candidate, Republican or Democrat, that ran last time, who has been the most consistent on arguing for and voting for peace, which when I was a kid, you know, the, all the peace protesters, the, the unilateral, the nuclear, the unilateralist, the, you know, the nuclear disarmament people, right. you know, the, Vietnamese, the, the um, Vietnam War people back in the 60s, 70s, whatever, you know, this was, these were supposed to be this was a thing of the left, right? But no, Ron Paul has always been a pro-peace guy, um, pro-civil rights guy, and anti-crony corporatism. I mean, he's been banging on about the cronyism that is um, built into our monetary system. He's been banging on about that for more than three decades. Now, yet, the media have characterized him as ultra-conservative. Interestingly, that's also what happened in England when the true Democrats who cared about individual liberty were screaming about the dangers of the European Union and getting into the Euro, right? Now, everything that they, and they were mostly members of the Tory party, the British Republicans, and the media always referred to them as far right. But they were the ones sticking up for true democratic principles. It has been always this way, I think, that the mainstream labels um, these kind of uh, these anti-establishment types that seem to be driven by um, a skepticism of collective action manifest uh, or driven by you know concentrated political power. The mainstream always labeled those guys far right. Now, I think now we are seeing that there is nothing far right about loving peace about supporting civil rights, about being against crony corporatism. In fact, if you want to match up the political beliefs of the presidential candidates who ran last time with the Bill of Rights, you will see that the supposed ultra-conservative far-right Ron Paul matches up most closely. Now, the Bill of Rights is a profoundly liberal document. Mm -hmm. It's a 
profoundly liberal. Now, I would also say that properly understood, it's profoundly conservative. Yes. Um, it was written by. Uh, it was written by. Let me. I'm using words. I'm approximating now, like because obviously I'm generalizing hugely. <laughs> but I, by men in the Anglo tradition who were conserving. Um, who were conserving that liberal Anglo tradition. Yes. So are they conservatives or are they liberals? Yeah. Well, the young people get now that left versus right, that if you set it up in opposition, then what you do is you basically misunderstand both where left and right come from. Um, you know, properly understood, healthy liberalism and healthy conservatism, you might say small l and small c, really can be traced back to the um, basic ideas of classical liberalism. And, uh, and, you know, you can say again to a crude approximation that conservative economics, are, you know, come out of classical liberal economics and, um, you know, liberal uh, social sensibilities come out of classical liberal social sensibilities, uh, if you want. You can divide it that way. But left versus right isn't the story. The story is liberty on the one hand uh, versus concentration of power stroke tyranny on the other. And that's, that's an easy sell to the young of the United States now. It's an easy sell, that, I think. I, I think um, and so that uh, is a massive cultural shift. Yes. Uh, and now the problem that we run into, uh, aside from the fact that basically, uh, there'll be a link on this, the, uh, there was a writer that talked about the dandelion moment. In the Occupy yes, movement. Yes, I, I, I read that article. Thanks for sending it to you. That was quite interesting. Uh, it was, he, he really, uh, Zach is a perfect example of that. He's a person who's coming out of the Occupy movement and came out of it on a basically different course than he went in. Um, I'm another one of those. Uh, I, I just, there's, uh, what has happened is the, we've been forced underground. Uh, there's now an underground resistance and a resistance. Uh, in my case, I, <laughs> I, I'm kind of exposed, so there is no backing up for me. But for the people who think they can still hide out, there is an underground resistance. Um, so that's part of what you see and what we keep trying to to keep people moving. Uh, learned helplessness. Uh, I think every show has been another episode of, now this is why we have to combat learned helplessness. It's, it's one of the biggest tools. Okay in the opposition toolbox. And I think that's something you address, too, from, from what I've yeah. heard. Yeah, I think that's fair. And, you know, and also um, along these lines, whereas Occupy, again, crudely approximating, um, are concerned about the economic injustices that come with uh, corporatism, and on the other hand, Tea Party... Uh, concerned with, well, I guess the economic injustices that come with statism. Um, the the emerging view, which I am trying to help emerge, me and many other people, is that the problem is not one or the other. It's that you, each one exists because of the other. And what we're dealing with is a state corporatist axis or a corporate state axis. And that it's that axis that is disempowering the individual. And this is an account that can embrace certainly um, the, the certainly what drives the Occupy movement and what drives the Tea Party. Right. And you know, 
The article that you did that talked about all the common ground between the two, uh, I thought that was superb. Can you can you kind of touch on that? Yeah, I think you're referring to that article um, where I I, I think it was called something like Blue Republicans OWS and the Tea Party, or Blue Republicans Tea Party OWS. Is this phase change? Right. And and what I'm you know, and I, I've I've spoken, you know, I've written in other articles about, uh, you know, what how phase change, political, you know, mass political change works in a culture, and uh, yeah, that it's actually about dropping grains of sand on the pile, um, and you don't see any big shift until the until a certain point where one grain pushes it, and you see again, you see this in history all the time, and we are these grains of sand, and I see this pile getting bigger and bigger, um, and uh, it's interesting that uh, you have Occupy and t- the Tea Party kind of forming, uh, I mean, as popular movements. I mean, I know that people talk about, oh, funded by the Koch brothers on the right. And I, I know all of that. But basically, there are popular movements that have arisen um, that have had serious, uh, had a serious impact culturally. And and are still having an impact. And they're, they're called popular have, for a reason. There's a lot of people right. involved. Right. I mean, by definition, right? So so um, now, and that tells me that even people who may have formally identified in very with very different parts of the culture, with different political teams, have a deep, deep sense that there is something broken, right? That that supporting their team is not going to get them what they want anymore. So that says we have to begin to think outside the current paradigm and we have to get out of the current system. Uh, we now don't have to just beat our opposition. We have to change the system. And so there's a recognition of a fundamental problem in Occupy and in the Tea Party and in, you know, the, among the Blue Republicans and other groups. Um, you see it also in the fact that the Democrats and Republicans are losing registrants and the, uh, those registering independents are, you know, that that group is increasing at a very high rate right now. Um, you know, so you're seeing all of these things. Recognition of the problem is the first stage to solving the problem. Mm-hmm. Both sides uh, can see that the problem is to do in some way with economic injustice. That's a very big thing. The Occupy are primed to see the corporatist elements of that, the Tea Party is is primed to see the statist elements of that, but the young who are now, who are seeing this as they first start to look at, um, you know, the politics of their country, see that they're one and the same thing. They see that that the state is involved in corporatist lawmaking, and the corporations, and especially finance, I mean, especially finance supports yeah, that it is the interests of big finance, big corporations, to maintain a state that is big enough to legislate in their favor at the expense of individuals that don't have uh, or can't bring together the resources. Um, you know, corporate uh, corporations um, can expend great resources and apply them specifically, right, to certain issues, uh, whereas we as individuals on, you know, median income, if we're lucky, yeah, you know, we have to get on with our lives, right? We haven't got 
we haven't got time. You know, if a problem is going to cost us immediately a few dollars here and a few dollars there um, and infringe on our freedom just a little bit here and a little bit there, we can't stop going to work to bring in money for our families to deal with that. Meanwhile, the, you know, we have um, banks sitting down writing laws with congressmen who are, whose like, campaigns are being paid by, you know, paid for by these banks. Same with the pharmaceuticals companies, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, you can, you know, Eddie, we know what we're talking about, right? right? right. The, and there's the monetary system. You know, we talk about, I mean, I think one of the, the real problems that the left have had, and one of the things I'm trying to get them to get beyond is, is to, to see, I should say, is that I think what the left has tried to do for decades is treat the symptoms, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's a distribution problem. Well, let's, let's make taxation more progressive. Let's uh, regulate more, Let's, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm saying, look, on the left, I get it. You don't have to throw your desire to see social and economic justice, whatever that means, and we can discuss it. But rather than trying to, um, you know, tax the rich more and more and more, let's undo the cause of the problem. Let's treat the disease, not the symptoms of the disease. And so you've got people like Ron Paul, the supposed ultra-conservative, saying the disease is the monetary system. We have a monetary system into which is built the transfer of real assets to a unique subsection of, the, of society that is licensed to do things with money and assets that none of us, the rest of us, can do. If you understand the monetary system, the transfer of wealth up to that elite is, you see that it's inevitable. So, you know, but the only reason they can do it is because the government legislate in that way, because they have an interest in legislating. Yeah, I'm glad you said that, because I was about to have a reaction. It, uh, yeah, it's mercantilism. They wouldn't have a chance if they hadn't had the crooked laws passed. Monopoly does not compete. Uh, they just have to have crooked laws to keep them in the ball game. Uh, yeah, and I mean, at least in the, I mean, at least in the days of you know, real mercantilism, yes. you, had, you, you, you at least maybe had the sense of um, you know, lawmaking out of an idea that you had to keep you know, your nation in the lead uh, among, you know, among the community of nations. Right? Right. There was that kind of sense about it. But now, it's not that. I mean, you know, we don't need to be... I mean, America's already the, most, the richest country in the world, right? I mean, again, I know that you can... Well, it's it's international mercantilism now. Yeah, but you know, we're, all, we're all doing just fine, thank you. You know, the poor of America don't have a problem of... Um, uh, you know, being emaciated, we have a problem with obesity. I mean, we're basically <laughs> we're basically okay, right? So uh, we're more okay than any other nation when it comes to our material well-being. Let's yeah, that but that. that's so, damning it with faint praise. And let's let's come back to that in a second too. Yeah, yeah, no, indeed, indeed. But you know, the, the point I want to make is um, there is no longer kind of any excuse for the state corporatist act, you know, axis. Um, it, it isn't doing anything but harming us. And, and, of course, now we're seeing it's not only harming us economically, it's harming us in our civil rights. Yes. I mean, look at the, you know, the NSA, Google, Yahoo, Microsoft, blah, blah, blah. I mean, what the hell is going on, right? And then we, cross that back over to the damage that's doing economically. Oh, well, indeed. And they're all very related. And this is, you know, this is another thing, you know. Um, uh, yeah, you see, there's so many big issues. With that. <laughs> well, we'll have more we'll shows because we're, we're, we're really trying to readdress how do we – every generation has to readdress what does it mean to be a liberal. And I, I sent you the one link. What we're going to do at the end of the show uh, is 
basically I made one reference to it, the liberals instruction manual here. But the Declaration of Independence, um, it's not an ancient document. It is a living document. It is, it is what the entire Constitution is basically just codifying. And all the rest of the body of laws on top of that codifies the codifying and et cetera, et cetera. But what that document comes down to is either it's self-evident is the way they look at it, a word that we've already talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Now, you either get that, mm-hmm. that's the self-evident part, or you don't. And it would also be great if we could get to show together that just parses the, the declaration, because it's this is the liberal yeah. tradition distilled down to one paragraph. Uh, you yeah. can run your foreign policy off of this. Uh, and yeah. I, I think Ron Paul was offering a much better look at a workable uh, foreign policy. You can run your economics off it. I mean, take off. What uh, What do you see in the we're, – we're going to – at the end of the show, what we want to try to convince people to do is, well, are you a liberal? Do you see this as self-evident or not? Because if you do, you have rules that you can live by. If not – well, then you can do what we're seeing right now. You just do whatever you want to do, lawlessness, anarchy. Uh, yeah, and I, want to, and I want to say that when you, when you ask that question and you use the word liberal, I, for me, you're using it with a small L yes. and in classical liberal. And what I want to do is free true liberals, classical liberals, from the you know, bill of goods they've been sold. Agreed. That that the use of big state force and, you know, one-size-fits-all progressive agendas are in, are in parallel, you know, work in the direction of these truly classically liberal principles, because they don't. Right. And so, you know, I think it's important that people who, who have this liberal sensibility, who hear those beautiful words of the Declaration of Independence and go, well, yeah, of course, that's, where, that's the country I want to live in. I want them to see that what many of them have been kind of tricked into traditionally supporting um, ha- yeah, in, you know, the methods that they've been supporting to get to those ends have actually subverted those ends and not actually supported those ends. Does that make sense? Yes. And, and, and yeah. You're, you're dead on target. That's, that's what we're – for two years now, and, and I was joking with Zach about this too, but, but we're basically – for two years plus – the thing they've hassled the Occupy movement about is, well, you never gave us your list of demands. And basically, and, and we can quibble over the numbers, but we were basically called the 99%. It's actually much, much bigger than that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, the, the point to it was, well, if you're trying to get something that 99% of the population actually doesn't have a, a disagreement with, it's pretty tough to find something that two people will agree to. It gets geometrically harder to take it to 20. And (laughs) so what we're trying to do, well, this is some assembly required, batteries not included here. Um, What does it mean to be supporting that document today? Because that document is still alive today. Well, one thing thing that I am kind of big on is, yeah, it's interesting to me, you know, as a kind of relative newbie in America, that the phrase constitutional conservative is well-worn. I never hear the phrase constitutional liberal, and I want to make constitutional liberal a thing. Okay. Right? And, um, 
Uh, yeah, I'm going to make some T-shirts with that on. <laughs> and, uh, and I'm not joking. There's going to be. No, I'm, I'm with you on that. We're, yeah. we're classical and, liberals. We believe yeah, in free market. Go but, for it. And um, yeah, now sorry. Did you start the question? Takes I lost my thread. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that. I think we've done that a lot because it's okay. like drinking out of fire hose here. <laughs> yeah, but I'm keep coming back. We've got basically roughly 15 minutes of show left, and I apologize because I lost track of just how much of the show we do have left. Fortunately, this is very non-commercial, so I don't really have to worry about my timing as much as I would have to. Oh, uh, but. Right. But I remember what I was going to say. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. The problem that I think Occupy has had in terms of getting traction. Oh, yeah. And, and in terms of actually going mainstream um, in the sense that, you know, the middle class suburban mum can go, yeah, yeah, that makes sense to me, is that element that, and I see this from someone who doesn't identify as Occupy, right? I mean, explicitly I don't identify and the reason is that I see some of the most fervent members of that organization, uh, it's not an organization, but of that movement, um, they're making specific demands for extra things that they want, things that they want to bolt on to what they already have. Uh, that's like, what we were, well, good point. That's what I was trying to say. Was we've got to get all the extraneous stuff out that people disagree to. Right. What are the so, things that the, everybody doesn't vote no to? Right. What we need to do is, is, you know, this is, again, it's iatrogenics. It's the Hippocratic Oath. We have to first do no harm. Okay. Most of the cause of the problems that the Occupy movement are rightly protesting against are because power, we have allowed power to do too much. If we stopped them doing the things that cause the harm, Many of the remedies, the positive, active remedies that many occupiers are seeking, which, frankly, to people like me, do seem, in many instances, leftist and will just compound the problem because they depend on yet more force. Um, you don't need them. You're, if the disease disappears, then you don't have to treat the symptoms anymore because there aren't any. And I think a lot of people like me and a lot of people maybe who are in the Tea Party look at a lot of people in Occupy and go, okay, well, yeah, they see the problem, but they completely misunderstand how the problem has come about. <laughs> mm -hmm. Now, if they stop, if people in, in, in both sides, I mean, this is something I will level at, um, at, you know, not just the Occupy movement, but other kind of fervent political activists who care about some of these things. If you decide that the way forward is subtractive, is that things that everybody can see are harmful, that you demand that they stop, that people in power can no longer do those things, pass those laws, make those policies, then, then the suburban mother will support you. Then you will be mainstream because you won't come up against people's skepticism about your ideology. You don't need an, in fact, an ideology is a bad thing right now. The problem is you've got too much ideology, right? You know, there have been leftist and rightist ideologies that have kind of been used to justify this kind of corporatist status mess that we're in. Right? We need to stop doing harm. First do no harm is the constitution in... In medicine. Right. Forward, sorry, I can't even count. Right? <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. That, that's, what, that's what I want. And, and, and when, you, when you reduce... When you not reduce, when you realize that the essence of what you're about is subtractive, 
Um, it's about stopping doing the injustices economically to our civil rights, etc., etc. Then you have masses of common ground. Masses of common ground. Okay, let me let me again. We're there's so much to catch and so little time left, but it basically it comes down to again. OASN's position is this is not an accident. They did this to us on purpose. We know how they did it. And that's the good news is if we know how we got here, then we know how we get back out. Now, I'm going to just take issue with that in one respect. Okay. Yes, we need to know how we got here. But we do not need to care, I think, too much about why. In other words, what were the intentions of individuals to put us here? Oh, yeah, I agree. Because some people don't want to talk about conspiracy. Some people don't think that individuals drive history. Some people do. Frankly, it doesn't matter. If we're being screwed by a system or by a person, then we need to deal with that, and we can agree about that. We don't need to know what's in anybody's head. I believe that's self-evident. I think the point that we're trying to come at it from is that basically, if it is being driven by a person, then again, that would be good news because all we need is a policy change. And what we want to try to address is what is that policy? What is liberal policy? What is, uh, what is a policy of freedom? Not state solutions, but individual solutions. Uh, I think I'm, right. I'm trying to, that's what I hear you saying. I may not have that quite correct because I'm famous for that. <laughs> yeah, you know, again, just to emphasize that you're, you're talking about classical liberal policy. And when you talk about policy, in many cases, what we could do with is not having policy, is taking things out of politics, like just taking entire chunks of our lives out of the political realm, you know, Can um, you, depoliticizing in many ways. Uh, basically what we, and again, we were trying to put together a show on growth. Uh, right. What, what well, we, we ran into was there are, nobody wants to touch that with a 10-foot pole. Um, basically, you and I are just setting up the background that you need to be able to have a rational discussion yeah. about growth yeah. because it comes out yeah. it, it comes out jumbled up. And then on my point, you say that possibly it's not important that they, whether or not an individual has caused this. I'm, I'm, I can agree with that just because I, I, there is a policy. I, can we agree to that? That. To, to cause these things to happen. And again, you can see oh, yeah. and I, deliberate dumbing down of America is a policy to destroy liberal arts, uh, meaning, and, and you can say this better than I do, uh, works worthy of free men. Can you say that in Latin? Uh, say that again? Ars, ars liberales. Is right, yeah, okay. Yeah. Did I say it right? I, 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 I'll Google it. I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm not. Uh, you, sounds, sounds good to me. You actually went to Cambridge. What was your degree in? Physics. <laughs> well, now that's great. We've got a rocket scientist and a physics talking about politics. This is like another one of your paradigms here. Yeah, yeah. Um, you can't see through the paradigm. Am I? That's stuck in my head. Where am I getting? Yeah, that, this is. We all. You know, we our brain. I mean, this is a neurological thing, right? We can't get out of this. You, Goethe said, you see only what you know. Right? Not you know what you see. You see what you know. It's kind of like, this, is this part this of gestalt? Yeah, this is true. Exactly. It's the same. Well, it's, it's related to that. that. Okay. Um, and I talk about, uh, how long have we got, Terry? Uh, I'm showing like six minutes. 
Okay, so maybe not quite long enough, but there are actually experiments, and when I go around giving lectures, I talk about, there was an experiment called Perceptions of Incongruity that was done at Harvard in the 40s, um, where they actually showed that what you see is what you think you're seeing. And many experiments have been done, yeah, what you're expecting to see is what you see, not what's actually in front of your eyes. And, uh, and so if our mainstream media, if our political class can tell us that there is a left versus right, that, that Republicans oppose Democrats, that Republicans and Democrats between them define all political space. If, 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 if that's what we know, then that's how we see the world. Okay. Right? And if conversely, we, if we get past that, what do we see yeah. then? Yes, we can. And that's the business I'm in and the business you're in. And, and what I'm saying is um, I think a lot of the young people, to go back to what we discussed earlier, that I deal with, they are – they are getting themselves past it because, yes. in a way, that is the purpose of education, right? Is to um, is to reduce the extent to what you know, the extent to which what you know limits the reality that you can perceive. And obviously, there is always an iterative process between updating your paradigm and seeing the world more accurately. But you always do see through your paradigm, right? You can only see in terms of the concepts that you already have. Um, and, and so we need to be aware of that. We need to be very savvy about the, um, adopting political concepts, social concepts, cultural concepts, that may limit our being able to see what's really going on. I mean, look, just look at the mainstream media right. um, and how they fail to recognize or tell us anything about the change that is already going on in the on the ground, cultural and social, let alone political, that was represented by this movement towards Ron Paul's kind of ideas. They they can't even describe it, right? They can't even they don't have vocabulary for it because okay they they kind of got to a point now of realizing that they can't just call Ron Paul ultra conservative. They stopped that, but they haven't given us any kind of positive description of what actually is going on in the country of this kind of tectonic shift in political and cultural sensibility. Yeah, they're, they're miles behind. And it's because the people in the mainstream media, their paradigm isn't updated yet to even be able to allow them to see what, what's going on around them. Um, people maybe like us, I like to think, are able to see a little bit more of it. We've got about uh, one minute left. Um, the, what do people need to do for... Paradigm change in one minute. What do, we, what do we see? How do we change what we see? You've got to get your ego out of your beliefs. Now, that's going to be a tough one for me with my big ego. <laughs> Please elaborate a little. Tough memory. You've got to put truth before everything. Ooh. As, as someone who loves liberty um, and is part of that movement, I even have to put my commitment to truth before my commitment to liberty. And I trust that if the more I love truth, then the more I'll find that I love liberty. But, but um, you know, there has to be nothing that's more important than seeing the world as it is. Uh, you have to be open to the possibility that there is something you do not know, the knowing of which could change everything. And most of the stories that I hear about people who've come to the kind of political views that maybe that we share have a story that confirmed that idea, the idea that they, there was something they didn't know, the knowing of which changed everything. A Damascus moment again? Yeah. 
Uh, well, we, we've now hit on topics that I think we ended the last three shows on. Uh, ben, <laughs> ben Swan was talking about truth first. Um, we just got through with the road to Damascus, um, and here we are again, and, and, and we're out of time. I knew this was going to happen. I, I feel like, well, now if we could only do about 12 more of these shows, we could get this thing straightened out. And I, at this point, got to beg you to come back. It was great, Robin. I really I appreciate so. it. I'd be glad to. I uh, feel like we've just done Section 1A. Yeah, well, some assembly required, batteries not included. <laughs> uh, once again, that's another edition of Occupy Interview. This was Occupy Liberal. Uh, please join us again for the next show. And until then, thanks for standing. Bye-bye.